0: The sermon text for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 40 through, 42 through 50. This is the word of the Lord. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Hell where there's where their warm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Is hell a real place? Sounds like a basic question for Christians, doesn't it? The answer is simple, yes. Is hell an eternal place? This is a different question, but also a basic Christian question. The answer is yes. And honestly, this is not controversial among evangelicals. According to a Pew research conducted in 2014 on the religious landscape of America, Over 80% of evangelicals believe in the doctrine of hell. But the doctrine of hell can be a hard pill to swallow, can't it? I mean, any kind of eternal punishment can be a harsh concept for us to wrap our minds around. Listen to how former evangelical theologian turned liberal, Clark Pinnock, explains why he abandoned the biblical doctrine of hell. I was led to question the traditional belief of everlasting conscious torments because of moral revulsion and broader theological considerations, not, first of all, on scriptural grounds. It just does not make any sense to say that a God of love would torture people forever for sins done in the context Of a finite life. You hear that? He changed his mind because of moral revulsion and not on scriptural grounds. He's basically saying, I see hell in the Bible, but it doesn't fit my morality, therefore, I reject it. But we don't shape our beliefs according to our convictions, do we? We seek to shape our, believings, our, our beliefs according to God's Word. And no other person in the Bible made the doctrine of hell more clear than Jesus Christ Himself. But who needs to be reminded of the doctrine of hell? Who needs to be taught, told, of the doctrine of hell. And here is where things get quite interesting. Surprisingly, whenever Jesus came across sinners, he didn't emphasize hell. He emphasized heaven. Think of the woman at the well in John 4. But very often, when Jesus thought on hell, he directed his teachings towards his disciples as we'll see that in our text today but why would Jesus emphasize the doctrine of hell to his disciples and the answer is because Jesus was concerned for their holiness hebrews 12:14 strive for peace with everyone and for a holiness without which no one will see the lord holiness is necessary And Jesus understood that to downplay the doctrine of hell was to downplay the need for holiness. Friends, no doctrine of hell, no holiness. No holiness, no salvation. This is why this doctrine is so important to Jesus. So as Christians, we need to desire the sweetness of heaven But we also need to heed the warnings of pending doom, of fire, and brimstone. We can't think that warnings do not apply to us. But we need to understand that the biblical warnings are often the means that God uses to cause believers to persevere in faith and in holiness. In other words, when Jesus warns His disciples of the reality of hell, He is displaying great love towards them. And this is what I want to show you today. Love is displayed through truth. So, he who loves speaks truthfully. Even when the truth is a hard pill to swallow. So, this message is both for believers and unbelievers. If you are a believer among us, this message should remind you that you must not downplay sin in your life. For sin leads to condemnation. If you're not a believer, this message should remind you of your pending destiny. All who do not believe in Christ and do not by the power of His spirit, pursue holiness, will be condemned for all eternity in hell. So receive him. Today, whether a believer or an unbeliever, I want you to let Jesus' warning. His warnings of judgment drive you to pursue the holiness that you so desperately need. You may remember that earlier in this chapter, in verses 30 through 32, Jesus reminded his disciples of his pending death and resurrection. In other words, he reminded them of the gospel that would soon be accomplished, fulfilled. So in light of these gospel promises, Jesus begins to teach his disciples on different aspects of the Christian life. So far, we've heard Jesus teaching them on humility. Remember, they were talking among themselves, Who is the greatest? And Jesus says, The greatest is the most servant-hearted. And then he teaches them on unity. Right? Remember that they were, they told the man, John told the man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name to stop doing what he was doing. And Jesus said, Anyone who is not against us is for us. Today Jesus emphasizes holiness. So we're going to consider three warnings from Jesus. Here are the warnings. Jesus says, Do not cause others to stumble. Number two, do not become complacent about your sin. Number three, do not expect comfort in sanctification. So let's consider first, do not cause others to stumble. Last week, our passage ended with Jesus uttering very sweet words towards his disciples. In verse 41, he says, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ... Will by no means lose his reward. Now, notice the first word in verse 42. Jesus begins with the word, whoever again. There is a clear connection between verses 41 and verse 42. Uh, Verse 41 says, uh, if anyone blesses you, he will be blessed by me. Verse 42 says. If anyone curses you, he will be cursed by me. It it hearkens back to the promises God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, doesn't it? God is the protector of those who are His. And He protects His people by promising blessings to those who bless them and curses harsh punishment to those who oppose them. So so He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in in me to sin... Be liable of punishment. But who are the little ones that Jesus is referring to? I mean, this is important because we do not want to cause these little ones to stumble. So who are these little ones that we must be careful with? Well, Jesus tells us, the little ones are those who believe in Him. Because of the parallels between verses 41 and 42, it seems clear to me that Jesus is speaking of his disciples. His disciples are the little ones. Some people believe Jesus is talking about children here. But although Jesus often refers to children in the Gospel of Mark, and you may remember even in this passage, he talks about serving children. There was a boy that was healed from demon possession earlier on. The word children or child is never used in these verses. As a matter of fact, back in verses 36 and 37, Jesus refers to children using the Greek word paideon. But Jesus here uses a different word. The word that he uses is mikro, small, from microwaves, small waves, a small one. It's a generic word, could refer to any age group. Jesus is telling his disciples that they're not great, as they thought earlier, but they're little. But that's good news because Jesus cares about his micro-disciples. Jesus cares about his little ones says about his disciples that if anyone should cause them to sin, the word here is from scandalizo. If you hear the word, you probably can uh, uh, sense the undergirding English word scandal. We've seen this word before back in chapter 6. And now this word is going to dominate this passage. We're going to see it here four times. Scandalizo means to cause others to stumble, specifically in their faith. In other words, Jesus is saying that we must be very careful with believers whose faith are frail. Because if we cause them to sin to the point that they would walk away from their faith, this would be of eternal consequences. I mean, the picture that Jesus uses here is some of the darkest pictures in all of the Bible. He says it would be better for that person to have a great millstone tied around his neck and thrown into the sea. Why is that better? Because if that person had a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea, he wouldn't cause the little ones to stumble, so he would be spared that judgment. So Jesus is saying a terrible Death is better than eternal judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus' picture is meant to shock. He's specific here about the millstone. He's not referring to a millstone someone would have at home to make flour out of wheat or things like that. He refers to a millstone that would be turned by a donkey, by an animal of work, an animal that is known for its strength. This is a great millstone. Indeed, a striking image. But what does it mean to cause someone to stumble? I mean, in just a few weeks, we're going to see a rich young ruler approach Jesus inquiring about the kingdom and Jesus' answers to this young ruler seem to discourage him from pursuing eternal life. Is that what it means to cause others to stumble? Well, we know that that's not what it means and we'll consider that passage in a few weeks. But here's what we can learn from this passage. Because Jesus upholds the truth, but he cares about the little one as well. Not causing someone to stumble does not mean softening the offense of the gospel. That's not what Jesus is saying. Do not soften the gospel. No gospel, no salvation. So clearly this is not an option for Jesus. So softening the gospel is actually what causes someone to to stumble. This may, this may feel counterintuitive. But actually, speaking the gospel clearly, right? Even when it confronts us with our deepest sins, is what actually helps people walk with God. And downplaying the gospel, altering the gospel, is actually what causes people to stumble. So some may think... That making the gospel more attractive is actually helping others not to stumble. But the truth is the opposite. When we speak the gospel plain and clear and let it go forth with all its offense, that is the most laughing thing we can do. So how is the gospel softened? First, the gospel can be softened and become a stumbling block when we alter its content. When we change what it says. Paul warns the Galatians about this, doesn't he? And and, and just like Jesus, he issues a stark warning. One of eternal condemnation. Galatians 1, 8. But even if we, Paul, or an angel, a, a, a celestial messenger from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is why James says, not many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. But the gospel can also be softened and become a stumbling block When we deny it with our conduct. Paul goes on to apply this gospel principle to Peter's life. Paul indicts Peter because Peter lived like a free man at times. But at times, because of outside pressures, he denied the freedom that the gospel afforded him. So in Galatians two eleven through fourteen, Paul says, "But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before a certain men came from James, that's from Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their." Hypocrisy. But when I saw, listen to this, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul saw this, right? Paul saw the whole, I preach the gospel, but I don't live in life in light of it, as a gospel problem. I preach freedom in Christ, but I don't live in light of it as a gospel problem. Friends, when we preach the message of the gospel, but our conduct is not in keeping with it, we're downplaying the gospel. People are looking at us and they're saying... Oh, that's what the gospel is. Hypocrisy is okay. We, we must not, we must not live in such a way. But on the other hand, we must also say that the gospel can be softened and become a stumbling block when we demand conformity to legalism. In one way, there is a warning here for downplaying the morality of life of the Christian life. But there is also a warning here for demanding morality beyond the morality that Jesus demands. Okay, That's what legalism is. We're thinking of our lives, and we're looking at the Word of God, and we're saying, this is what the Word of God demands, but I'm going to demand more. That's legalism. Now, we can have personal convictions that go beyond the Word of God, can't we? We're going to decide to abstain from certain things, and, 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 and we can decide that for ourselves. We can decide that in our home there are going to be certain practices, and we can decide that for ourselves, and we're going to decide that we're going to raise our children in this way or raise our children in that way, and, and there's certainly freedom, right? But we downplay the gospel when we say, you must live according to my convictions. You see that? It is not enough that Jesus demands what he demands, you need to also live according to what I demand. That's legalism. And that downplays the gospel. This was the problem with the Galatians. Jesus was not enough. Jewish law had to be added to Jesus. But when we add any demand to Jesus, that Jesus does not initially give to us, we lose Jesus. We lose the gospel. So friends, we must examine ourselves often. Are we in any way adding to the gospel? Are we in any way embracing legalism? Legalism has this incredible ability to appear like a good thing. Very religious people are often legalistic. I am a very religious person. So we, who are very religious, must be very careful. Lest one of these little ones stumbles not on the offense of the gospel, but on our legalism. Well, let's consider now the second point. Do not become complacent about your sin. Jesus goes on to explain the perils of complacency with sin. Verse 42 was a warning for us not to deceive others. Remember I said in the beginning that these warnings are given to the disciples as a means of grace. Jesus warns them so they avoid the judgment. But in verses 43 through 48, however, the warning is for us not to deceive ourselves. And how are we in danger of deceiving ourselves? By continuing in sin after we've been set free from sin. One of the marks of the disciple of Christ is the continual battle and victory over indwelling sin. Our relationship with sin ought not to look like a dance, but a wrestling match. Our relationship with sin must not look like a weekend in a cruise ship, but a lifetime in a battleship. Fighting sin often does not look pretty, but it is necessary. John, First John three six. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him, or Known him. I I love the way that John puts it here, right? John does not say that no one who abides in him ever sins. But there's this continual aspect. It is this continual life of choosing sin in an unrepented manner. So John is saying, no one who abides in him can be characterized, can live a lifestyle of sin. The word scandalizo appears three times in these verses. Jesus mentions here three body parts, hand, foot, and eye, and tells his disciples that if these body parts causes them to sin, they should amputate these body parts. Again, a gruesome picture, an ancient surgery, done without proper medical equipment, anesthesia, or a modern understanding of hygiene. Jesus' language is strong. Cut off the hand. Cut off the foot. Gouge out. Throw out the eye. Jesus wants to shock his disciples into reality. He wants to shock us into reality. Holiness is a necessary byproduct of salvation, and we must pursue it with all our might. I think these three instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples about hand, foot, and eye are to be taken as one. I don't think it's helpful for us to try to understand what exactly the sins of the hand are or the sins of the foot or the sins of the eye I think that Jesus meant these pictures to work together. Jesus wants us to see here that the battle against sin is an all encompassing battle. This is when it's helpful for us not to read Matthew into Mark, okay? Because Jesus in Matthew actually associates the eye with lust. So when we're reading Matthew and Jesus is teaching in Matthew, we should associate the eye with lust. But notice that Mark doesn't do that here. So we need to read Mark in light of Mark. Mark is painting a different picture than Matthew. Mark is saying, you need to dedicate your whole body, right? From top to bottom and everything in between. You need to dedicate it all to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has given you freedom and victory over sin. There's no area in our lives, I think this is the message that Mark is getting across, where we can look at sin and say, it's okay. Romans six seventeen and 18, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed and having been set, being set free from sin, have become slaves to righteousness. I love that. It's like our wills must be bound to righteous living. Friends, we are not enslaved to sin. So how could sin master us? We're free And our freedom should drive us to righteousness and not sin. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Very often, the concept of freedom in our minds comes with no restriction, right? What does it mean to be free? It means to have no restrictions, I can do whatever I want. I can pursue whatever morality I want. That's what Clark Pinnock was saying in the beginning, right? So so the concept of hell bounds me to a morality that I don't subscribe to. But let me encourage you to view freedom in a different way. How is a locomotive most free? When it finds itself in beautiful green pastures or when it finds itself on a track? How can a locomotive experience freedom? It is by finding itself in the tracks that were designed to give it freedom. So when you see the, when you see the laws of the Lord, when you see the morality of the Bible, and you say, I need more freedom than that, Oh friend, you're being deceived. You're not experiencing freedom. It is those who submit themselves to the morality of God who experience freedom. Because when we do that, we live in the way we were designed to live. So there is an appearance of freedom in rejecting God. But there is true freedom in receiving Him and submitting ourselves to Him. The freedom we experience in Christ should lead us to do what is right and not what is sinful. We can never look at the grace of God and come to the conclusion, since I know God will forgive me, I can sin sin freely. We should never look into our lives and find areas where we are justifying sin, downplaying the seriousness of sin, playing around with sin, planning to sin. Grace never leads us to disobey God, but always to obey Him. You may have heard about the conference that Andy Stanley, a pastor of a megachurch in Atlanta, put together this past week called the Unconditional Conference. In this conference, he pursued the approval of homosexuality in the church. Listen to how radically different the words of Andy Stanley stand against the words of Christ in the Gospel of Mark. He said in the conference, I sat in a small group of gay men, 35 and up to 65, and watched them weep because they don't have a family. They couldn't have a family. They prayed for that, and God didn't answer their prayer." And many are convinced that traditional marriage is not an option for them. So they commit to living chaste lives. And for many men and women who put their faith in Christ, they just decide, okay, I'm just going to buckle down. I'm just going to bear down. I'm just going to be by myself. I'm not going to have a family. I'm going to be sexually pure. And many, 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 many do that for long seasons of time and for some it's their whole life but for many this is not sustainable so they cho- they choose a same-sex marriage not because they are convinced it's biblical they read the same bible we do they choose to marry for the same reasons for the same reasons many of us do love companionship and family and in the end as was the case for all of us this is the important thing I want you to hear me say it's their decision. Do you hear what he's saying? Andy Stanley is saying that victory over sin in some cases is not possible. Andy Andy is akin to a doctor who sees a deadly diagnosis in a patient, but tells the patient there is nothing to worry about because the road to healing would be too difficult. Now listen to this contrasting opinion. One of the evangelical responses to this conference came from a man called Sam Alberry. Sam Albury is an Anglican pastor who has struggled all his life with same-sex attraction. But he chooses to live a celibate life. So Alberry responds to Stanley by saying, I have always been single. On the whole, it's been deeply joyous. But I'm not immune from temptation. And when any leader suggests to me that chaste obedience to Christ in singleness is not sustainable, he's saying the very same thing to me that the devil says. Friends, initially, it seems like Andy is being so loving, doesn't it? But his attempt to love is void of truth. Sam Albury calls Andy Stanley a liar. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying. When we think we can freely live with sin, we're believing the lies of the devil. When we think a little sin here, a little sin there, who cares? It doesn't matter. We're falling into the traps of the devil. And what is the devil's goal for our life? Death. Destruction. So friends, listen to me. Holiness is necessary. And Jesus says that anyone who does not heed these warnings, the warnings to take sin seriously, the warning to fight sin to the death will be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus is interested in truth. Because truth leads to life. He who most loves you will tell you the most truth. And no one tells more truth than Jesus. So Jesus tells his disciple, hell is real, avoid it at all costs. The word Jesus uses for hell here is Gehenna. Gehenna refers to a valley outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. In the book of Chronicles, we we learn that King Ahaz, and King Manasseh, probably the two worst kings that Israel ever saw, sacrificed their own children for Molech in that valley. The valley had become a representation of a place that was accursed. And Jesus often associates the reality of hell with Gehenna. a Terrible place, a place to be avoided at all costs. And here are three things that we learn from Jesus about hell. First, hell is real. Hell is a real place. It exists. It is not just a concept. It is not just a state of mind. There is a physical place called hell. God designed hell. Hell does not belong to Satan. Hell belongs to God. God designed hell to be a place where people pay for their rebellion against him. Second, hell is a place of awful punishment. The body decays, and the fire burns. Unimaginable pain, chronic pain. Finally, hell is an eternal place. The decay never comes to an end. The worm never dies. The fire is never quenched. It's pain, and there's never relief. Is it fair that God should send people to hell? Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. God is eternal and God is holy. So when we sin against God, by the way, every sin is a sin against God. The only logical consequence is an eternal consequence. And who does Jesus warn about this place? His disciples. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if holiness is not enough of a concern for you, that you're not willing to go through drastic measures to kill your sin, you should be very worried about hell. So how do we obey Jesus here? I mean, should Christians be cutting off their hands and feet, gouging out their eyes? No. it's not what Jesus is saying. We see no example in the Bible... Of the disciples then following to cut off their hands, feet, or gouging out their eyes. As, uh, as a consequence of Jesus' teaching here. Um, we see no evidence in church history. Or we see virtually no evidence in church history of disciples um, doing such a thing. Besides, if we gouge out our eye, we still have another one. Don't we? As a matter of fact, we can gouge out both eyes and still sin, can't we? We can cut out hands and feet and still be led into temptation. If a, but I think our application here is more in terms like this. If a relationship is, you have is leading you to sin, you should cut out the relationship. If your job demands you to do something that is sinful, you should quit your job. If your phone enables you to sin, you should get rid of your phone. But victory over sin does not come ultimately from seclusion. Do you believe that the most secluded monk in the most secluded monastery, in the most secluded part of this globe finds victory over sin because of seclusion? They don't, do they? They still have their minds. Even if we harshly cut off every part of our body and every part of, our, of the environment that causes us to sin, sin would still linger because sin is not born in the hands or in the foot or in the eye. Sin is born in the heart and it is bound to our desires, James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when he has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But how do you change your desires? Through the gospel? through the gospel. Titus 2:14 Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It is not by harsh treatment of the body that we overcome sin. It is by believing in Jesus. It is by believing his message. It is by believing that he died and he rose again. And if he rose again, he gives us power to overcome sin. So you may be hearing this message and saying, it's too hard. That's true. It is. You need Jesus. You need the power of the gospel to grab a hold of your heart and to change you. You need to believe that Jesus died and he died For you, not just so that he could cancel the sins of the past, but so that he could give you victory over the sin of the present, and so that he could present you to himself one day in plentiful victory over sin. Friend, you need to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You will not live a holy life apart from him. God is holy, and he gives His holiness. Cast yourself on Christ. Now let us consider our last point. Do not expect comfort in sanctification. Now, I'm going to go over this point briefly. It is not easy to discern exactly what Jesus is saying here. I've read and heard a lot of people much smarter than me comment on these verses And there is hardly agreement among commentators on what Jesus means. But I think the broader context can help us understand what Jesus is saying. Verse 49, Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone here is important. Who is Jesus referring to? He's speaking to his disciples. So I think Jesus is speaking of his disciples. Everyone will be salted with fire. So he is saying, every one of you will will experience the salting with fire. Salt and fire are both connected with temple sacrifice. And temple sacrifice was connected with holiness. It was through sacrifices that sins were covered. So Jesus is saying, you are going to have to present yourselves as a sacrifice. I think that's what Jesus is saying. You, you are to be the salt of the earth. You need, to be, you need to produce good works, and you will be tested by This, I think Jesus is saying to his disciples here, it's hard to live a holy life. It is a life of sacrifice. No one is saying that the Christian life is easy. But it is necessary. It is necessary to live in light of holiness. But simply because holiness is hard, it does not mean that it is void of grace. If you're hearing the sermon, you're saying it's too hard. Friend, welcome to the Christian life. It's hard. The Christian life is not just hard. The Christian life is too hard. The Christian life is hard beyond our abilities. It's too hard for me. It is too hard for you. It is too hard for All of us. Jesus is not calling us to do something that we can do. Jesus is calling us to live a life of holiness. And he tells us, you can't do it. So, you need grace. You need grace. Grace does not make holiness easy. Grace makes holiness possible. You're not going to grow in holiness if your understanding of grace is void of power. You're not going to grow in holiness if your theology of, of grace leads you to spiritual apathy. You must look at grace and say, that's what I need. Because Jesus, you're calling me to do something that is beyond my ability. So you need to give me the grace to live such life. And with Paul we say, Yes. Your grace is sufficient because grace is powerful. 2nd 2 Timothy 2:1 2, You then, my child, be strengthened in what by the grace that is in Christ, Jesus. So Jesus is calling you to do something that is beyond your power, live a life that is characterized by holiness that is bound to holiness, free from sin. But Jesus will also supply the grace. So find strength in grace, die to sin, avoid hell, and find hope in Christ. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, what a hard call Jesus has put on us. Lord, it is hard beyond our greatest strength. As a matter of fact, the call to holiness just reveals our great weakness. Father, we, we need grace. Lord, we, we desire to be holy. We need grace. We desire to obey Jesus, but we need grace. So help us believe the gospel. Help us believe in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins, for the empowerment of holiness, so that, Lord, we may avoid condemnation and that we may enjoy eternal life with Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.